I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres and give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and then, of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. Recently, I had the just pleasure of sitting down with Allison Pearson. I've been a huge fan of hers from the time I read her first book, I Don't Know How She Does It, which is, if you, if you just want to laugh, you just got to get this book. And her new book is called How Hard Can It Be, which is just as funny. So for anybody out there that wants to read a funny and smart book, which is hard to find that combination. You've got to pick up Allison's books and first listen to the conversation. Sometimes when we try to do it all, we think we can't because we're just inadequate. But is having your daughter send a selfie of her tush or your husband newly discovering his lycra-clad body or trying to remember how many years you shaved off your age to get a job? Are all these things more than one woman can overcome? We'll find out as we are joined by the wise and witty Allison Pearson. Allison is the best-selling author of the utterly hilarious I Don't Know How She Does It, which sold over 4 million copies, which makes sense to me, and was made into a movie starring, oh, Sarah Jessica Parker, And Allison is joining us for a conversation about her latest book, How Hard Can It Be?, which has already been optioned for TV by the producer of Big Little Lies. Alice uh, writes for the Daily Telegraph, the Times UK, Daily Mail, Time, the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Observer, and lots of other publications. In her first book, Allison Pearson introduced us to Kate Reddy, a dynamo who did it all often in hilarious fashion, outperforming men at her hedge fund, finding creative ways to be a perfect soccer mom. I still laugh at the scene of Kate figuring out that her daughter might end up going to jail and explaining to the police that it all began when her mother made a fake mince pie for a school event. And then, of course, Kate, the mom, is figuring out all the future damage to her daughter. Haven't we all done done that? In the sequel, How Hard Can It Be?, we fast-forward seven years and find Kate pushing 50. She's a stay-at-home mom in the suburbs, struggling with two teenage children, a husband who's lost his job, elderly in-laws that require care. Kate needs a job, finds herself back at her old hedge fund, and quickly discovers that age and experience aren't exactly valued. So, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil the story about what happens to Kate, but here's what I find fascinating that Allison does. She addresses the really, really hard issues like raising teenagers in the age of social media, losing interest in your marriage, returning to work after an extended absence in a hilarious way without in any way diminishing the seriousness of the topic. It's quite a feat. So welcome, Allison Pearson, to Just the Right Book. Lovely to be here. <laughs> well, and Allison and I are here in person, uh, which is makes it all the more fun. So remind us where we left, Kate, for those who foolishly have not yet read, I don't know how she does it. So we left Kate that she had given up uh, her city job and gone uh, to live in the country with her husband and uh, two small children. And that was really to save her marriage, which was in a bad place because she'd been very stressed. I have to put my hand up and say that I thought it was the wrong ending. I'm very bad at endings. And a lot of women readers who loved the book said, why did you give her a get-out-of-jail-free card? Mm. I can't have that. Women identified with it so closely. And I think I did it because I didn't really know how to end it. So that's where she was. She was um, going off to do a kind of portfolio career, really, little bits and pieces, Mm -hmm. and be more present in her kids' lives because she had been very, very absent in her husband's life. So, Alison, that reminds me of a question when you say a a get-out-of-jail-free card. So... There is a bifurcation among women. I see women who don't have a choice 
and therefore they have to stay in the workplace and just figure the rest of that out. I see women who um, choose to go home and that decision has ramifications that might come close to Kate in in the new book. And, you know, I don't know... I don't know if I would – I get why you think maybe that was getting her a get-out-of-jail-free card. But I also think it makes sense that today, when I started my career, which would have been almost 50 years ago, I would have thought not as many women would go home. I think that – I'm not sure of the situation here, but more and more in Britain, the case is that – only the rich women or the poor women can really choose to stay home with their kids. That's, yeah. that's, that's increasingly the case. So it's either people who have got uh, high-earning husbands who can let right. them be home with the kids, or it's you know people who get state support. The majority of women now, and the majority of women still say in survey after survey, they would like to be home when their kids are little. But economically, that's not really yeah. a choice because the housing is so expensive. So people, it takes two incomes to, to yeah. support it. And of course, young women are brought up thinking, I can be the same as a man. So, you know, there are things to be said on both sides. Um, but getting back to that thing you said about writing in a very funny way about serious things. I mean, that that's my instinct always as a writer. And I think somebody said when, um, I don't know how she does, it was published. They said, why didn't you write a factual book about working moms? And I said, if I'd written a book called Ladies, Your Life Stinks, it would have sold four copies. Yeah, But you write a very funny book, which people love being laughed into recognition. You know, that moment when you're reading I a book and, that's you, right. and you think, oh, my God, she, you know, she's felt that thought. You know, it's that very... It's an entree. I think it's an entree because what I think that's exactly right. If it's funny, you begin to be willing to think that's about you. And if it's serious or something awful, you might distance yourself and say, oh, I'm better than that or I wouldn't let that happen to me. But I think if you start with humor... I think you, that, that, you draw people in. I think that's putting it very well. I hadn't really thought of it like that, but yes. So, also Kate's uh, calamities tend to be bigger than most people's. So then people think, "Oh, mine, mine my, are better. Mine are better." <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm screwing up, but at least I'm not screwing up as much as her. So I, I feel I'm providing like a kind of uh, a medical service. So <laughs> starting with calamity, um, would you take a minute to read? Um, the piece towards the beginning of the book, so we're not doing any spoiler about your daughter, no, not the the character's daughter, Emily, waking her up in the middle of the night. Yeah, Kate's... um menopausal, so her sleep is quite disrupted. She's taken a um, an antihistamine to try and deal with all of the hot flushes. Um, but anyway, Emily comes in and shakes her awake. Emily is 16. 2, 11 a.m. You sent a picture of your naked butt to a boy or boys you've never met? Emily nods miserably. She sits in her place at the kitchen table, clutching her phone in one hand and a Simpsons mug of hot milk in the other, while I inhale green tea and wish it were scotch or cyanide. (laughs) Think, Kate, think. The problem is I don't even understand what it is I don't understand. Emily may as well be talking a foreign language. I mean, I'm on Facebook. I'm in a family group on WhatsApp that the kids set up for us. And I've tweeted all of eight times. But the rest of social media has passed me by. Until now, my ignorance has been funny. A family joke, something the kids could tease me about. Are you from the past? That was the punchline Emily and Ben would chorus in a sing-song Irish lilt they had learned from a favourite sitcom. Are you from the past, Mum? (laughs) So Emily's a pretty good kid. She's kind of a normal teenager. Now, you know, when we were growing up, and you and I grew up in slightly different times, Mailing a picture of your tush naked would be way outside of the norm. Can I just say, I don't want you to fall over in horror, but I am reliably informed that this is the most vanilla option of what they send in pictures now. Well, so 
We had an author at the store who wrote a book called The American Girls, and it's about social media and kids. We had 600 people show up for this event because of the helplessness. Helplessness. And so, Allison, in writing about Emily, you know, let's talk about the obvious, what is the role of a parent or what can the parent do with the way that social media has so altered how we parent? I think it's a huge puzzle. I think it's immensely problematic and I don't think we can even see it clearly yet. We're on a a journey without maps or lights. And my perception is that when you and I were growing up, However boring your teenage bedroom was or however, you know, you know, you were quarreling with your mom or something, at least you were in your home. You know, mm. you were you were there where you were accepted for how you look. Nobody cared. It was you, just you. I was just me, you know. But now the peer group follows them home, follows them into the bedroom, mm. constant right. invidious comparisons. Oh, that girl looks great. You know, she's out at this party. I'm not invited. I mean, we may well not have been invited to the great parties, but we didn't know. So ignorance was bliss. So at the opening of the book, of course, you have Emily, who in innocence has shared her picture of her summer tan lines, which has been then shared by a malicious girl. And that's gone gone viral. And Kate, as the mother, is thinking, I I want to be able to protect my daughter. How do you protect her from this vast, monstrous, sprawling thing? So one of my great American friends, Sharon, who helped me so much with the book, and a lot of the stuff she said got into the novel. And um, just to give you an idea, Sharon said she had put parental controls on all the devices in the house. Right. And she felt really pleased with herself. This is what a responsible parent is doing. And good, one, good job. Good job. Great. You know, they're all safe. And um, one day the computer guy came around to fix something. And he said, I, I hate to tell you, Mrs. Seltzer, he said, but your daughter has downloaded how to bypass parental <laughs> controls. And she has paid for it with your credit card. So as Kate says in the book, basically, we are Stone Age people living with Bill Gates. Yeah. And and this is the first time probably in human history where the kids are the natives Mm. and the parents are the immigrants. Okay. So when I do something on, on the laptop, my son will say, why are you doing the long way around? And I think. Right. They're teaching us. They are teaching. They're teaching us. Well, they're teaching us. But what they want us to know. Only what they want us to know. Right. So I will say something to my son, Tom, and and uh, he just will laugh. It's like, do you really think we would not be able to, you know, work ca- around that? Mound your, no, it's your instruction. I mean, it's so that presents huge problems. And I think we are seeing an epidemic of anxiety amongst young girls. Mm, because of this. Because I'm convinced because of this, because they spend hours uh, taking selfies of themselves, mm. figuring out their best angles. I sometimes, there was a period when I thought my daughter didn't actually want to go into real life because she couldn't control her image sufficiently. I remember mm. being in a restaurant and watching her observing herself in a mirror behind where I was sitting. And she was almost adjusting her face to the selfie face. So that's where we are. Um, There's no putting that genie back in the jar, right? But I wonder, I wonder, will the kids themselves at any point begin to see the dam- damage? You know, even as I say it, it seems fantastical that that would happen. I mean, I just, I don't. I don't quite know where the end point of that is. It's hard to tell. I suspect in 10 or 20 years we'll have detox programs for yeah. kids who are addicted. Um, you wouldn't have a child in a bedroom and throw in a sack of crack cocaine, would you? And that's what we're doing. I do believe that's what we're doing. I mm. do believe that. And I think it's, uh, of course, you know, we. one of the things the book says is that parents have got an awful lot on. So you're not, you know kids on a screen it's fine they seem to be busy and you know you're not of course we all have those battles you're not having that you're not having your cell phone at the table you know you need to do your homework now but you know we, we all feel it's kind of this incremental battle. onslaught onslaught right and so speaking of onslaught um 
one of the things that Kate does is she does manage to get herself back at her hedge fund by lying. So so let's start with that. She shaves seven years off her life, I believe, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do you think that she wouldn't have gotten the job if she hadn't? Uh, no, I don't think she would have got the job. Um, in fact, one of my very good friends who worked in that kind of work and she was a great inspiration for Kate originally and a few years back she uh, needed to to get a job and she went to a headhunter and that scene makes its way into the book and she is a highly capable person this one woman she's you know run, she had founded she'd run yeah. run everything rescued a failing school advised charities on their investments so she had kept her her skills up and she went to this headhunter who basically just said you know you're useless useless nothing you nothing you've done in the last 7 years running your family taking care of older people the whole thing we know that women do yeah. basically women run the world and you know and then the guys, and men get the credit the men get the credit and the guys go to play in the office you know that that's what happens we know that's what happens but she was humiliated and she called me she was in the car and she was crying and she said it's finished for me i'm you know i'm mm. o- i'm over so i was that was one of the inspirations for this sequel, really. I was just absolutely outraged. I thought, how dare you say that this amazing, accomplished, accomplished woman. person who you would, you know, you would trust in any difficult situation. And another friend, actually, who works in banking, and she made me laugh. She said, why would I ever have any problems dealing with difficult clients? She said, I'm the mother of 15-year-old twins. And, you know, that's the Yeah, that's the and that's case. the reality. And in the, But the reality is that... It's not thought of as a make, skill. No, but making a mistake with your kids, that's, no, that's potentially really serious. So we're talking yeah. about the family stuff is... This is hugely important, but it's not. It doesn't have any economic worth, and therefore, it's considered to be worthless. So the book is in, you know, and you do that in the book. You know, it's something that I actually do in real life when women who have been home, uh, they they might call me about fixing their resume. Yes, and you have Kate do that, and Kate in fixing a resume turns her skills um, that were real, but she gives it corporate words. Yeah, she. She she decides that if everything she's done is not is nothing, she will take the nothing and she'll turn it into something with Harvard Business Speak. So she says things like, "Over the past six years, I have built up an impressive track record in conflict resolution." <laughs> Translation: wrestled the Xbox out of Ben's hands after three hours solid on Grand Theft Auto Four. <laughs> Got him to agree to consume at least one green vegetable a day plus brainy teen fish oil capsule in return for more time on Grand Theft Auto Four. <laughs> so yeah, so again, it's comedy but it's making you know the reality making a very serious point which is these things we do uh, which are just taken absolutely for granted are in fact evidence that we can you know accomplish accomplish a lot lot. we're good at you know we're good at relating to people we develop you know we we bring people you know all those things which have huge value in the corporate world yeah Uh, and the idea that kate age 49 and a half would be worse at her job than one of the kind of 29-year-old guys, is it, it's ludicrous. And, yeah, and, yeah. and indeed, as it proves so in the book, because although they've got their, you know, their kind of master's degrees and so on, they can't, the basic Operate. business of relating to a normal, you know, a, a client with an ego that needs massaging or all those things that we pick up um, through the years and which makes older people, you know, very skillful. So would you read, I love this section, Kate comes back from her first day at work. Um, So this is 7.05 p.m. Yeah. Yeah, this has been a busy day, her first day back at work. Would anyone like to ask Mummy how her first day back at work went? No, fine. I understand that people have better things to do than pay homage to the breadwinner. Richard, my husband, just waved at me, scooting through the kitchen on his way to the shower after chucking a pungent lycra top on the floor of the utility room. 
Emily, my daughter, yelled at me when I put my head round her door. Apparently, I interrupted a vital eyeliner <laughs> tutorial and she got a black streak down the side of her face. Ben, my son, is in the living room playing some horrible new video game, which I don't recognise and I'm quite sure I didn't pay for. The only one pleased to see me is Lenny the dog, who practically leapt into my arms when I came through the door and has stuck by my side ever since. I'm grateful to inspire such unqualified adoration in at least one member of the household. Later, I need to do some work looking through client profiles so I can be on top of things. If the boy in work throws a question at me tomorrow, first I need to make dinner and then it's time for my tranquilizer of choice. So how does Kate, or any woman in this circumstance, not manage to get angry about being considered sort of slave labor in residence. Uh, I, I think the truth is she just lives with a lot of seething resentment, which occasionally boils over and uh, often prompted by the smallest thing. But then there's a kind of like, do you know what I do around here? And do you think it for Kate, does it get better? Does she ever educate her children to help? Why don't we? I think that's changed a lot, hasn't it? I mean, I think I'm sure there are some wonderful parents who get the kids doing all the chores. I, 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 I you know, I did it periodically. I, I, I didn't do it reliably. No, I didn't do it reliably either. It's a regret I have. Yeah. I mean, I would then, what would be, would be, you know, put up with it, put up with it, and then suddenly mummy explodes and then it would be like, what's her problem? Oh, she's so cranky. Yeah, exactly. I remember once I'm saying, saying, you need help <laughs> to me it was when I was, you know, I was angry with them and they just said, you know, oh, she's... You I know, do need help. Yeah, I, I do, <laughs> do need... Do the dishes. I do need Do help. the laundry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Not the kind of help you think Let, I need. No, let's see if we can find your bedroom floor. You know, it's kind of... Um, no, I mean, that's, I guess that's one of the reasons that the book, I think the book's a kind of great uh, a joy and therapy for women readers is because they aren't, you know, they, they tell them that somebody is noticing they do everything, which, yeah. is, which is the author is, is, is realizing they do everything. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's, it, it's almost like a sort of secret, you're, you're almost in a kind of secret spying world, you know, where you're just re- revealing the, the, the truth that's just below the surface. I, I do think, I do think, when I think about both books, Allison, that, um, you know, I, th- I think when you're reading it, like when you take the paragraph you just wrote, have you, do you hear from women who say, you know, that made me realize how ridiculous that I do that all? I'm going to change. Or is it just that they connect to it? I think they mainly connect. I did have a number of women say that after reading I Don't Know How She Does It, they had changed their lives. I mean, they had realized that they were living with such a burden of stress and guilt that they made different choices. They thought they could see very clearly. Because I think in the first book, I mean, Kate... How great is that? Yeah, it feels like quite a responsibility. But they, I think in in the first book, she is kind of borderline crazy. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, she's... She's just about doing all the juggling. But if anything drops, it's, you know, so I think that and I look back on my own self at that age and think, what did you what did you think you were doing? I was remembering that my first job back at work when my daughter was four months old and the the paper sent me to uh, a London hotel to interview Tom Hanks. And Mm. I had just about kind of done my research and got squeezed into my black interviewing uniform and uh, got to the door of the hotel suite, opened the door. And as I was holding out my arm to um, shake Tom Hanks's hand, I realized there was like this epaulette of baby sick all the way. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So I said, oh, my God, I'm covered in baby sick. And Tom Hanks, who was the most delightful man, said, oh, don't worry, happens all the time. I thought, no, it doesn't. But um, so so you have that you have those moments when, you know, everything goes wrong and I but I do think that's as we've said I think that's one reason that they became the books of you know become very very loved and popular is is because they tell you know they tell the truth about what it is like to 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 be to be in that situation to to be the pack mule basically and then you know and then something goes wrong and of course if things go wrong like with the kids or with an elderly parent then it's it seriously goes wrong doesn't it yeah and you know, the other thing I thought about, there's a scene in the book where Kate 
uh, Emily is stressed out about getting her 12th night paper done, and Kate bails her out. Um, She sits down and writes, pulls it together and writes some of it for her, yes. Do you think we're doing our kids a favor or not? Oh, I think that for reasons it's quite hard to see, I think that we micromanage them more. I think if you were going to get to be philosophical, that the slight retreat of religion has meant that kids have become a religion, I think. Mm. They are the little deities. And you want to... Ooh, that's interesting. And I think you want to preserve them from harm. That's your primary thing. And I think that, you know, whatever, 50 years ago, I'm not... Parents were loving, but they, you know, my my husband has said to me, my parents didn't even, wouldn't even have been able to tell you what exam subjects exactly. I was doing. Whereas we're there, you know, with tutors and books and, you know, have you read this? Have you, re-, you know, and, and we read along with them. And my son, who is doing important exams at the moment, and I asked him the other day if he had a revision timetable. And he turned on me and he said, you're uh, neurotic, paranoid, and tyrannical. And I thought, well, the vocabulary is okay. You know. <laughs> uh, and then I said, I said, that's the job description. I'm your mother, a neurotic, paranoid, and tyrannical. I mean, you know, yeah, that's the job. That's the job. That's. I'm sorry, I'm not going to apologize for that. But yes, I would say lots of parents I know are uh, reluctant to let the kids make mistakes because the yeah. modern world feels very competitive. It feels very punishing of if anybody, you know, deviates or loses marks or whatever. So I think it's not just that parents are being neurotic, that the world to some extent has made us neurotic. Failure seems to be heavily punished now in a way that, you know, I made a mess of my 20s. I veered off. I did a lot of, you know, dead-end jobs. And then I rescued myself in my late 20s, early 30s. I think now it feels like you have to get on the track, you know. And if you're you're not on the track, you know, bad stuff will happen. So the interesting thing that you just said is you rescued yourself. And I wonder why we think that the ability to rescue yourself now is a harder job than it was when you were in your 20s? Well, I wonder whether there's some perception that the world is, you know, less tolerant. tolerant. Well, it was funny the other day, I was thinking with these set of exams with my son, and I thought, I really do want him to learn from his mistakes, but not this mistake, because this would be such a terrible mistake. I can't tell you how many times I did that over, my son's name is Edward, how many times over the years I thought, I do want him to learn about failing, but not Not, this one, one. not not now. So that was the thought I had, because he has an offer of a place at university, and I'm thinking, now would not be the time to let him learn the error of his way, of his lazy ways. And of course, when you have a boy as well, and if you've been a very conscientious girl, which I was, and you have this kind of kid who's basically worked out how little he has to do to pass. Yeah. Oh, my God. The book is also is looking at the challenges of parenting, but also looking at the fact that because women have increasingly postponed, put off having their kids until later, and so we have this, this issue, this age issue. My mother, when she was going through the menopause, I would already have gone off to college. Right. But now... Um, You've my, got everything converging. Everything is converging. So... My daughter was basically going through puberty while I was entering the menopause. So we, um, what my husband described. I like the way you say entering the menopause as if it's like a resort. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like a house. Well, it's quite hot. It is quite hot. Um, and and, it's a spa. It's a spa. (laughs) It's a sauna. Come on, Rosanne. It's a sauna. But I think Anthony described my relations at that point with the puberty daughter and her hormones surging in and mine surging out was he described us as North and South Korea. (laughs) Um, And I think that was right. And then, of course, you've got your parents are aging. So you have this this thing where you coming up maybe for 50, still got teenagers at home elderly parents needing more care, plus you physically and mentally are facing the challenge of your own uh, aging. aging. So it's all pretty, that's, that, that's, that's, the, that's the central thing of how hard can it be, which is that Kate, who's always been able to rely on her body and her mind, suddenly feels like she's losing both, really, you know. And so her- how does Kate, what do you think were the ingredients of Kate coming through it? Because one of the things, uh, Allison, that you know we've mentioned a couple times that I think your books do is they're entertainingly instructive on different ways that women at various ages might 
think about things. So what is it that you think ultimately here, without our talking about the ending, what do you think gave Kate the the capacity to kind of drill through all this? Well, she's my heroine, so she has to she has to drill through. She has to give us a narrative. I mean, I don't see the books as offering lots of answers, but I do see them as asking most of the right questions. I do too. And I think I wouldn't presume to offer, you know, all the answers. I mean, I myself had a very difficult menopause and I uh, there are some bits in it which draw on my own experience of feeling like I, I was always so kind of mentally on things. And that loss of agency, the, you know, I mean, we joke about, you know, not being able to find the glasses that are on the top of our own mm-hmm. heads. But it can be very humiliating. And she has to, Kate has to be, you know, functioning because she's going back to this environment where she can't just kind of curl up under the desk. You know, she has to keep going. Um, I uh, found myself, found hormones, um, which Kate does start taking, and that made an enormous difference to me. So that's the one bit of actual prescriptive thing, I would say, Mm -hmm. that that had been hugely helpful for me in um, rediscovering myself. It's interesting, isn't it, that when I started to write the book, I think thought there is almost zero writing about this stage in a woman's life. Well, that, you know, the thing that I have found, and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, so I'm going to be 70. And um, in reading both these books, it was, you know, a couple of decades off from my age each time. But I found it fascinating to realize two things. One is, hmm, there hasn't been that much change in the years. You know, when I started working in 1970, I would have thought the world in 2018 would look dramatically different. It looks somewhat different, but it doesn't look dramatically different. But I think the other thing that both books do is make it safe to talk about things that really aren't in that many books. You know, there are an increasing number of books, but they tend to address them either in a nonfiction way, which I don't think is as impactful. No, I really don't, because it's the the empathy works if you're exactly if you're in living through the characters we won't disturb the readers with the incident in the oligarch's bathroom but um yeah i decided oh my god that was there are two scenes which we won't talk about <laughs> that i think alone are worth the price of admission oh, i'll good. just let everybody know okay so if you can find them and let let us know what you think they are uh i uh thought some of this stuff happens to half the human race. Exactly. Literally. And once uh, friends had got the kind of some of the early chapters, they would say, oh, my God, that happened to me. You know, I was cycling, There's a scene. I was cycling home and I had a leak. And yeah. I, had to, I didn't know whether to get off the bike. I didn't know if I could go and change my clothes. You know, all this stuff. And this is this happens. That's real. It's real. Yeah. Women. Which woman? You didn't think you didn't think you were going to get your period then. And that's the day you're wearing white pants. Yeah. yeah. And and, how many people is that? And again, a friend who, you know, went to visit, you know, a very, very famous kind of client in this immaculate house. And she said she sat down on the famous client's cream linen sofa and was like in this, uh, you know, paroxysms of, you know, of horror and demeaning oh my god but you know as an author i think you know so i yeah i decide i'm going to be the quentin tarantino of menopause i'm going to let them have it just you know not to not to shock not to be a downer just to say this stuff happens while you are having to function be high functioning in the world and well done to all the women who get through days like that and still you know perform well which they do and i think that's the other thing to say this is not about women whining kate has never been you know you might have the craziness going through her own head but in her professional life she is exemplary she performs and she never misses her targets and so on and that to me is very that's what we're saying well the reason kate is a heroine to me Um, in both books, uh, that she's a heroine to me, is she is totally reflective and aware of just how complicated or daunting or disheartening 
yet she marches forward. I mean, she she is definitely a put one foot in front of the other and do what needs to be done. And that makes her both heroic and also, I think, lets other women understand that maybe they can't be as heroic. You know, what I think you managed to do, which is, I wonder how you think about this when you're writing, is you give us a hero, but you don't make someone feel badly if they don't manage to pull it off the way she does. Well, that's true. But I would say that I think that there is everyday heroism in millions of female yeah, lives. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that the Kate says at some point, I'm not a marcher. I don't go on marches. But I would go on a march to to stand up for the great untold, the vast mm. untold work of this world that women do. Yeah. And that speaks for me that's i really feel women are you know amazing resourceful strong you see women you know all kinds of yeah. social economic groups people just doing the best for their families and and men too but the, the woman's role is that you know making the home making stuff okay and these things tend to only make headlines when a woman has you know, let let the site, you know, let the place down. That's that, you know, you often see oh, the bad mother. Yeah, but we we get very little about the, you know. So this is saying to, you know, this is saying to women, you know, well done. You, you know. know, one of the things that you're talking about this reminds me of is in watching uh, the wedding on TV between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, the shots of her mother. Mm sitting there where her face to me, which I thought was absolutely beautiful, was just spoke volumes yeah. about the role of, in her case, a single parent and a working yeah. parent. I was just, more than anything else in the wedding, Yeah, I was, I was mesmerized by the story her face told. Yeah, I I agree. I had to write about it for my paper. Oh, did you? Paper. Yeah, and I said that. Yeah, there was such a pride and dignity, wasn't there? It was. A, there was. was just, I was just. I was in love with her. I think everyone. I well, I I said that we adore Doria. I said in the uh, Doria, we adore you. Yeah, because she really shone out, didn't she? As a special presence. She did. So one of the things I was I was going to ask you because we're starting to uh, run out of time. There was a long time between the two books. What was it that prompted you? Was it hard to write the second book? Did you think you weren't going to do a second book? What What was that about between these two? Well, there was there was a book in between called I Think I Love You, which is a kind of romantic comedy about um, a teenage girl who is obsessed with David Cassidy. I guess that's my most autobiographical book. <laughs> we can talk about that, yeah. Alison. I didn't... Um... After I'd written I Don't Know How She Does It, I just felt I'd said what I had to say. It said to everything I had to say about working motherhood. And um, I was thrilled with the way it went, you know. And I, mm. um, uh, an American woman I met at a book signing all those years ago, she came up to me and she said, uh, I hate to tell you, but little kids are the, are the easy, easy part. part. She said, wait till Kate has teenagers. And I, lit I literally, you know, you, you're in that kind of broken nights phase when you just can't imagine. You just think, well, at least they're going to, you know, be able to kind of go to sleep and go to yeah. the bathroom by themselves. You know, why would that be bad? Um, but then, of course, yes, you know, you, you, you do become a mother of teenagers and you see all that. And then I was reading more and more about this sandwich generation, which, again, that, when it's when it's described in a kind of dry theoretical way, you know, people say women women in their forties, fifties, and sixties, and you go blah blah, you go, blah 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 blah, blah. <laughs> oh sandwich generation. Right. But actually, when you are the you know you are the you are the mozzarella and the panini, you know, being you know pressed, I, I like that pressed on by all. Then you think, oh, I see sandwich generation, mm. and I I was very I'm I'm interested as an author in these vast yet secret social. The forces that press on individuals. Mm -hmm. So I increasingly think that the stuff we see on the nightly news, although it's important, the things that are really important, like women delaying childbirth uh, to fit in around workplace demands. Two of my best friends never had children because they delayed it so long. So that's another, yeah. I think something like one in four university-educated, college-educated women won't have children now. So we're seeing these 
vast sociological, sociological shifts, shifts right. really vast. And nobody really talks about them. They're just, that's what's happening. And you think, well, I've no, said... No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I've said to my daughter, my mom had me when she was 24. I had my daughter, my first child, when I was nearly 36. These are huge changes. I was 42. You were. And, and this has become perfectly normal. But I've said to my daughter... Um, if you meet someone nice and, you know, you're 25, you know, feel free, have a baby, because that would be, it seemed to me we're told now this is the right time to do it. I'm looking at some of the women I know who are dealing with these huge challenges in their 50s. And I'm thinking, who says it's the right way around? You know, I think we've been forced to, um, you know, the structures, the work structures. You, If you really want to know what I feel I think when a woman moves into a man's life, she improves everything about it. You know, she goes into his apartment, she takes away all the horrible kind of coat, beer mats and the posters. We moved into the world of work, which was men's house, and we didn't really change it. We didn't make ourselves comfortable. Yeah, I was, I was going to read that part in the book where you say, we turned ourselves into men to succeed in a world designed by them for them, but they never learned to be us and maybe they never will. I I think that is probably true. So the basic thing of the last 50 years is women, young women, were allowed to have their dad's jobs and they retained their mom's responsibilities. Mm. That's a heavy load. I'm not complaining. I think it's great. I just think that quite a lot of things in society can be explained by that central mm. fact. But, Alison, you're bringing up another question that I don't think is discussed enough. And that is, does more thought need to be given to the right time for each person to have a child? So I had a career in the financial world in New York. I You were a Kate. Uh, you know, I was a Kate. I didn't want to derail that career. I was married the whole time and then did have a child. But at that point, I could have one child. There are people also, you know, I mean, can go down the scientific route, but you have people saying now, oh, I'll freeze my eggs. There is no real proof that that, that, works. that, that, that works. So then you give people a false sense. So, you know, I'm kind of the kind of anti-contraceptive, anti-Mary Stopes kind of person. I just, you know, look, it, it's hard to say to people. I just don't think you should make these vital life choices based on kind of other people's co corporate considerations. Yeah. To have missed out on my children would be to me unimaginable. Mm. Kate says, and I don't know how she does it, try to think of a world without Emily and Ben in it, like a world without music or lightning, mm. you know? They are our heartbeat. Yeah. They are this great joy. So I don't, I, I say that not that I don't respect people who choose not to have children. I very much do. But I think let's not let's not put this as a, you know, a kind of optional. Let's not push it down the line yeah. to be the thing where, oh, you know, let's start trying when you're 38. And it may or may not work because for lots of women, they can't afford the, you know, these vast interventions and so on. So, But I do wonder, you know, you're 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 bringing up something that I don't think also is a conversation that the workplace hasn't necessarily adopted, adapted. So if women are really in many ways best served to have children early and get to, you know, see their whole lives, get to see grandchildren, you know, if you have a kid at 42, you know, I want to say to Edward, have a kid before I'm senile, you know, and I won't even know I have a grandchild. Yeah, so my, so there are ramifications. There are, that's what I'm saying. No one really thinks, right. no one has really thought. So my mom who had me when she was 24 has been the most wonderful hands-on grandmother to, your to children, my kids. And right. they have a special in that, you know, that lovely relationship because, you know, she adores them. She's much less harsh with them than she was with me and my sister, of course, you know, and um, they can do nothing wrong. So that's a very special relationship. And as you say, if my daughter doesn't have kids younger, I'm not going to be that much use in terms of being, yeah. being able to kind of we'll you know, be drooling. step in. <laughs> the, well, well the, years ago, exactly, years ago, I, um, uh, with the first book I appeared on, I went on Oprah, which was something else. Wow. And yeah, that was so great. I want to hear about that. Um, oh, it's amazing. And uh, there was an audience of women and one woman, great lady, said that as with lots of grandmothers now, they're having to step in and do childcare at the point mm. where they should be retiring. This lady said, 
said that, hell, she said, I book a babysitter twice a week so I can go out and leave the grandchildren, you know, seriously. And I'm thinking this is another thing we've done is we've pushed that generation who, Mm. you know, could be, you know, resting and enjoying their life. I'm not saying I'm not saying looking after your grandkids isn't a pleasure, but I know lots of of women in their 60s, 70s, even into their 80s who are two or three days a week are full-time because it's too expensive too expensive yeah yeah so it has we'll make it look we're making this sound as though it's like some yeah. worthy social treatise this is a funny book yeah um, but it does raise lots of things that as we say just don't get dis- yeah i don't want i don't want listeners to get no we misled no no because they will, the, you will be you'll be laughing throughout and but there will be moments where you'll probably feel quite tearful as well so that's 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 the mode i like that i i like the that sort of the two sides of the coin that's what i like flipping almost continuously yeah so here here's here's how i would get to the two closing questions here's what i would leave our listeners with about the book it is the most entertaining way i could imagine to bring up the issues that you'll want to discuss with your friends or your spouse. Yeah. And I I can't imagine a happier set of hours than thinking about these issues by reading about Kate. Well, that's great. And I and I um always makes me laugh that with I don't know how she does it <clears throat> with the first book that various women said that they would be in bed reading the book laughing and then they would be shaking their husbands awake to read them a passage they particularly identified with. And I always think this poor guy probably thinks it's his lucky night. And then he's got, <laughs> some, got some woman reading some dreadful passage. About I did some... that with Kev. Yeah, I definitely did that. I, I know is, it. Yeah. I know it for sure. Yeah. I did it with both books. Kev. <laughs> but I think I do think a lot of guys uh, could do worse than read these because they're kind of like primers for, um, you know, your wife, your girlfriend. And um, one of my favorite ever fan bits of fan mail I got was a little postcard of the Brooklyn Bridge, black and white postcard with, uh, it was from Bill from Brooklyn. Dear Miss Pearson, thank you for explaining why my wife yells at me the whole time. And I thought, yeah, because actually men who are living with, say, women who are going through the menopause, they can read this book and they can develop an understanding. Develop an understanding. And a lot a lot of women have given bosses or male colleagues these books because it just helps to kind of, I think... It does. Understand. Mm. I think one of the big changes coming back to what you said was that when I used to go into some of these big firms, a lot of the women then, this is 15 years ago, was saying that uh, their male bosses tended to have wives who'd stayed home. So they were not aware mm. of what the challenges were. My perception is now is a lot of guys have wives and they're dealing with who are it. dealing with it, so they can see that it's a kind of joint shared project. And there's right. so I think that that has happened. I think men now have a lot more hands-on care for their kids. So I think we're probably seeing a more understanding world. Yeah, we had I um, interviewed Michael Shaban early this week, who has a book out called Pops. Yes, and. It was a wonderful conversation, and the way he thinks about being a father is utterly different than his father and most other yes. men. And Michael is not even that old. I mean, he uh, that young. He's in his 50s. So I think about when you think about your kids or I think about my son, who's 27, I think they can be at the forefront of thinking about all of this in a more holistic way. They certainly can, and I think that... They can also think what kind of life would be the healthiest for everybody. to live for everybody as as parents. You know the long absences and the craziness. You know, I look, I'm look, I'm not, I'm not a communist. I don't think someone can wave a magic wand. People have to work and work hard. It's just that what we, I think, the untold, the unforeseen consequences of some mm. of these patterns that we've evolved without really thinking. Um, may impact on us. So Kate says at one point about 
Uh, she's got a colleague called Alice at work who's a young woman in a mm-hmm. d- disastrous relationship. Yeah. And Kate's basically saying, um, uh, oh, yeah, I'm, are we allowed to swear? Let's, let's just, yes. okay. So Kate basically says to Alice, don't put all your eggs in one bastard. And, <laughs> uh, and that, I think, is my, would be my general advice. If you're 29 and he doesn't look like he's showing any sign of committing. Move to on. You, move on. Get out of there. Find somebody yeah. really great to start a family with because you do not, you know, I've seen so many women who get to about 33 the guy decides to you know i'm amazed split up and then they always go off and have twins within 18 months it's like some horrible you know so so um uh yeah there's a that's that's is one bit of advice from the book all right so the book's been optioned for a tv show by the producer of big little lies which i love yes by bruna papandrea who is uh her company made up stories is Really looking to make uh, drama about from women, strong women's tales, which I think is great. You Who know? do you want to play? Oh, I, oh, I do. do you think Sarah Jessica will come back? And well, I don't know if she will, but we've had. Um, I think Naomi Watts has expressed interest. I, for me, the exciting thing is to see now actresses in the right age group. Suddenly, there's yeah. a really strong co- cohort. I mean, look at the Big Little Eyes actresses. I, I was drawing up a list. I mean, they're phenomenal. It's unbelievable. And I think another great thing, it's a kind of side effect of the Me Too, is that that whole Hollywood thing that, you know, woman got to 38 and they, they either shot her or they let her play Johnny Depp's <laughs> mother-in-law. <laughs> Seriously, you know, I mean, there was a period when Winona Ryder was playing like the parent of someone who was like, yeah, Laura Dern, older than her. You're thinking, what? You know, and I think that's not going to be allowed to happen anymore. No, because I don't think the Nicole Kidmans and the, you know, whatever, and Amy Watts and so they are not going to go quietly. They're not going to allow midlife women to be. You know, the, some movies you watch, you know, and it's the only midlife woman is like some woman walking dog past crime scene. Seriously. And yeah. I think we want to see. I think that's changing. Sub- women of substance and character and, you know, still looking great. You know, Do you have Frankie and uh, Grace yes. in yes. the in yeah. UK? Yes. Absolutely. I mean, I love that. Love How great it. are I they? Know. I know. That scene where they... Um, the guys, the guy in the store is ignoring them and serving a younger customer. And then I think it's Lily Tomlin says, oh, we have this invisibility superpower. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. they, decide, they decided to lift some stuff from the shop because they, cause he can't see he them. He can't see them. No, that's so, right. So I think that now that we're getting more visibility about this idea of, you know, ageism and women having to kind of quietly disappear. And I think we're not, you know, I think that's all. That's it. So in some ways, we've all done our job. Yeah. As women, it just took longer and is taking longer maybe than we might have imagined. Yeah. And also, I think that something I've, I realized when I'd written the book was that female friendship is such a big, yeah. you know, I think as you, as you, Kate says, you know, you, one great thing about aging is you can't have old friends when you're young. And I, and I do feel at my stage of life now, my Praetorian guard, my, my women friends yeah, are I hugely psychologically, emotionally important to me. And I think that's a very female thing. So that's a wonderful thing. I'd hopefully like the TV thing to celebrate as well. So will you be involved in the TV series? I think my main plan is to get be called something like executive blah and sit in Malibu Go having with ideas. It. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I don't, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. No, I'm. I had one idea which I did suggest to them. Kate says I used to have a, a wonderful brain, a memory with a super computer retrieval system. And she says, now I have um, an elderly librarian called Roy who has to go to the back of the stack. I love that character. To find, you know, like, what's that name of that film with the, you know, that woman in it? What, you know, the, yeah. Uh, that and was, he's invisible. He's Roy, a fantasy. Roy, Roy is a fantasy. Yeah. Uh, but is always like, when she can't find the car keys or something, she's basically thinking, Roy, Roy, where are Roy, the keys? Roy, where are the keys? But Roy, Roy's basically kind of like, he kind of goes to try and find the fact, but then maybe he needs to go to the bathroom, or he has a, you know, he has a, <laughs> has a cigarette, and then what happens? He'll come back two days later with the name that she needed, but it's by this stage, it's completely a little the, late. Yeah, it's called Thelma and Louise. I don't need to know the name of Thelma and Louise now. I need to know the next thing. So I suggested that they should ask Stanley Tucci to play Roy, and I thought it would be absolutely wonderful. Wouldn't that be great? Where he could just be sitting on her kitchen counter, just basically, like as if. 
Invisibly. As if invisibly. As in, do you remember the I Dream of Genie, where the, the, yeah. the, the, the genie would just kind of, I thought it would be so funny. It was Barbara someone, wasn't it? Barbara. I don't know. We have to ask Roy. We'll have to ask Roy. <laughs> Roy, Roy, was Barbara? Excuse me, you got Barbara. I'm, that's, you get mega points for that. <laughs> I get her confused with uh, Samantha and Bewitched. Yeah, in a yeah. way, I get that same that same um, per, that same look of, of lovely woman. But so I thought uh, I thought the sort of Stanley Tucci character sitting there, kind of arms crossed, thinking, "Oh my God, mm. this woman! Where are your concert tickets? You know where you put your concert tickets." So yeah, I probably have. A few ideas. I very much like the idea of this. Um, there are more and more women returners groups. Yeah, would you talk about you talk Kate about, and joining one? Kate joins one, and she has a bit of a. She's slightly cynical about it, but I noticed with the moms at school that people who had been in very you know high powered, very good jobs, the loss of confidence is so quick. Mm. I I always think it's a seven year rule. I see women who have been out of the workforce. For more than seven years, and it's a struggle for struggle. them yeah. to get back, even if they were king of the world before they went home, that it's a real struggle for them to not feel like they've lost it, it's too late, they're over the hill, they yeah. can't get it back. And those are the women I always feel badly for. Yes. Well, I agree. I mean, if I had any advice I now, I guess I would say always try and keep something going. That is the advice. If you can, yeah. even five hours a yeah. week. Something. And do that. Just just, just don't go completely in kind of cult. That's right. Because I, I, I feel that that, that that would be good. But So I thought with, that a TV series, you could have a group of women returners who are trying to get their confidence back. And you could have very, uh, you know, a very wide yeah. range of women. And I'm excited you're going to be working on the show. Well, I don't think I, I, I probably I'm not, but I'm, I'm, May- I'm at least being in that way they do. They ask your opinion and presumably then they go and do exactly the opposite. Oh, how can they resist you? <laughs> That's what I'm going to go with that. So let me ask you the last question oh, that I'd okay. like to ask. Yes. Like to ask our authors, what's the book that changed your life? Oh. I read Catcher in the Rye when I was quite young and I just thought, oh, Look what you can do with words. Mm. But I read Pippi Longstocking, the Astrid Lindgren book. And my mum says she can remember me about nine or ten. And I was hugging myself with glee. And I read that book again the other day. I hadn't read it for 40 years. And it is wonderful. It's the nine-year-old orphan girl in Sweden, you know, red plaits, living a completely idiosyncratic, independent life on her own. Um, and it's just a feminist book. It's uh, no wonder I loved it. I mm. mean, she goes to the circus and she says she's going to fight this man. And they said, but he's the strongest man in the world. She said, why would I be worried about the strongest man in the world? I'm the strongest girl in the world. So that's a wonderful book. What made you pick it back up? I picked it back up because I was asked to nominate there was a list of a hundred books for the Hay Festival. Yeah, thinking about exactly stuff which I would give a little girl, and mm-hmm. uh, and I thought that I guess the absolute truth is not a book. Uh, we were having in the late nineteen seventies power cuts in Britain because there were lots of strikes before Margaret Thatcher turned up to tell them to stop striking, and. Um, I was preparing for Cambridge entrance to read English literature and I had read very little Shakespeare and I sat by the kitchen table and the lights all went out and by candlelight I read King Lear. That was the first time I read King Lear and Mm. I will never forget it. There are certain books, it's the feeling, Mm -hmm. it's the feeling. So Beloved by Toni Morrison, it's the feeling. You may not remember precise things, it's like they alter you at a cellular level. Mm. And there are those books which you always remember how you felt. It's the, it's the feeling. There's a quote from, I'm not even sure I'm saying his name right, by Italo Calvino on why read the classics. And I'm paraphrasing the quote, but what he talked about was that a classic is a book that rearranges your brain and rests in your unconscious. And that I totally agree with that, that, you know, I know some people that remember plot and verse and I don't. I have a visceral recollection. That's what I mean. So I remember where I was sitting when I finished um, Anna Karenina. The sensation. The sensation of feeling like or even a sense of loss. I mean, as an author... uh, best thing someone can say to you is, I can see that I've got 
15 pages to go. I don't I don't want to And I don't want, I don't them, want to them, end. them to end. And that would be I feel that way about this interview. Oh, well we've had a <laughs> haven't, haven't we had a wonderful time. We've been talking with Alison Pearson uh and her latest book is called How Hard Can It Be? And it takes uh, Kate Reddy, who was our heroine in the first book. I don't know how she does it. And Kate is now almost 50. She's 49 and a half and is on a new series of adventures, challenges. And Allison, again, you've brought that wit and wisdom that made over 4 million people love your first book, and hopefully there'll be hopefully. even 4 million others reading this book and another 4 million that'll go back and read the first book that hadn't read it before. So, Yeah, that's a whole generation of young moms that haven't read it. That's so, right. Yeah. So thank you very much for joining us on Just the Right Book. It was an immense pleasure. We always love hearing your feedback, what you recommend, and what you're reading. Please continue to send us your notes, and you can email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com or message us on our Facebook page. For a complete list of all the books we've talked about today, including Allison Pearson's How Hard Can It Be?, just go to bookpodcast.com. And next week on Just the Right Book, I am really looking forward to a conversation with John Meacham, his latest book, The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels, was published by Random House on May 8th. And in this new book, Meacham helps us understand the present moment in American politics and life by looking back at critical times in our history when hope managed to overcome division and fear. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening. Mm-hmm.